0: Our scripture today is from Hebrews chapter 12. It's in your bulletin. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand, of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to God. Well, today I I had to do a lot of thinking about what to do for this uh, sermon because it's Christmas and this is kind of our Christmas party, but it's also a celebration of a little bit of our church's history. And so I was at a little bit of a loss. And so I've decided to tell 12 Days of Christmas I'm going to tell you about 12 different Christmases that this church has experienced over the years. We're going to kind of peer in on what was going. Some of them will have to like look around a little bit a few years before, a few years after, just to know kind of the context. But, but I want to imagine Christmas over, 12 different Christmases over the last 170 years of Northminster Presbyterian Church. And, and think about some of the practices. And I could have picked a bunch of different ones, um, but I picked these 12. And uh, so here I present to you the 12 Days of Christmas at Northminster. We begin our journey in 1851, 170 years ago. This was our first Christmas as a church. We were a church started by a group of people who uh, really believed that slavery was wrong, and a number of them worked the Underground Railroad in this region. Um, There was this particular guy named Joseph S. White. He was the the conductor of the Underground Railroad in this region, used his house for the Underground Railroad. It was down near Pizza Hut downtown. And uh, his father, uh, James White, had come here and gotten land as part of of, uh, payment for his work in the Revolutionary War. And um, so he he came, he was born here. uh, Joseph lived here, grew up here, and then was part of of the, uh, the, the, he was an abolitionist, and part of the Underground Railroad. The challenge was at the time, you were not to do that, right? That was illegal. And a couple of things happened. Number one, the president of the United States said it was illegal to uh, harbor any slaves. And the church at the time, the Presbyterian church, said that they would not discontinue communion over the issue of slavery. In other words, if you owned slaves, you were still allowed to commit, you were still allowed to have communion, you were welcome at the table. And that bothered some people. And so a group of people decided to start their own church. They joined what's called the Free Presbyterian Church. It's a very small group of churches that happened for a very short period of time in this area, but actually there's a lot of history to them. And uh, they met at a local barn and also at a brick schoolhouse on South Jefferson street. And so, so imagine that first Christmas, these people coming together, a lot of them part of the Underground Railroad. In fact, probably they're, they may be worshiping at Christmas, Imagine coming to Christmas Eve service knowing you have escaped slaves hiding in your house. You're meeting at a barn or you're meeting at a schoolhouse. Remember, if you're meeting in a barn or schoolhouse, how many organs do you have? None. And so probably the worship is all a cappella. Most worship in those days was. So somebody would just say the line or sing the line and everybody would repeat the line. And so we started 1851. Um. In fact, this, the church didn't even have its own pastor until 1853. It was just this group of people. Our second day of Christmas. Imagine Christmas, 1867. We are now a church. We've gone through the Civil War, though we've gone through some tough times throughout that. We now have a building. Down on the diamond, and some of you maybe new and maybe don't know where this was, but, but our church was actually right there on the center square in what we call a diamond today, down in Newcastle. You can still see this very narrow, looks like an alley with a very short wall. Uh, it's like two doors down from, from Coney Island downtown, and you can see where the frontage of the church was. You used to walk through there, down a long hallway, and then back in to what was called White Hall, named after James White, who uh, his son was part of the founding of this church. During this time, they were meeting with the Newcastle Reformed Presbyterian Church to share ministry. Also, in this uh, right around this time, they wrote a letter to the Free Presbyterian Denomination asking to change the denominations. I actually found the minutes and found a copy of this letter, so let me read it to you. Okay? The Free Presbyterian Congregation of Newcastle, PA, at a meeting duly notified and appointed, held the 25th day of September, 1865, hereby requests the Presbytery of Mahoning to dissolve the connection which has long and so pleasantly existed between us and to strike our names from their role with a view of connecting ourselves with the new school Presbyterian church. The respect of which we cherish for the Presbytery and the congregations which we have held association as well as a due regard for ourselves, requires that we should briefly give the reasons which compel us to take this step and a request that they, that they placed, be placed in the minutes of the Presbytery. Okay, no, Nobody writes letters like this anymore. Okay, It is evident to us that the mission of the Free Presbyterian Church as a distinct sect has been accomplished. We organized an anti-slavery church when the government and all-leading church Churches of the land were slave-holding or pro-slavery organizations. We stood for truth and righteousness with a few other small denominations of Christians in the midst of almost universal defection. But in the providence of God, slavery, after baptizing the nation in blood, has been abolished by the will of the American people. And most of the churches have been reformed and now take the principles and positions which we originally assumed. Letter, so, so the letter goes on to say we, we don't need to be a free Presbyterian church anymore. We can reassociate with everybody else because we've moved and what we did worked. What's amazing about finding these minutes? I found these this week. You can see how torn apart this is. Is they're signed, they're written and signed by the clerk of session Joseph S. White. Okay, that slave, the, the guy who ran the Underground Railroad. And so I found his minutes, his signature, his handwriting, which is much better than mine. Uh, so if anybody wants to see that, I'll leave it here. So imagine Christmas uh, 1867. That letter has worked, and now the church has become part of a different denomination. And in fact, those two churches, that, that other church that had been ma- meeting with them, joined together to be this new congregation under a new name. They would now be called the New School Presbyterian Church of Newcastle. So imagine uh, worshiping. With this new group of people, imagine feeling like you've really accomplished some of the things that you started out to as you've seen the end of slavery. Now, also think about this, everybody. That means our church has been merging with other churches since 1867. Everybody catching that? This would not be the first time, this was the first time, it wouldn't be the last. In 1925, Fourth Presbyterian Church from the south side of Newcastle closed and about 50 of their members joined what was then Central Presbyterian Church. Later, Second Presbyterian Church would close and several members would come over. And of course, in 2017, Third Presbyterian Church would close and a group would come over in that too. But we thought that was really cool. We've been doing it for 150 years. (laughs) The third day of Christmas. Imagine Christmas 1894. The building on the diamond is in about total total disrepair. Okay, the church tried to find a buyer for the building. They couldn't find one, so they just decided we're going to fix up the building. So they, they basically totally redid Whitehall. Now, interestingly, at the time, our church was really called Second Presbyterian Church. You can even find newspaper articles calling our church Second Presbyterian Church because we were in the same denomination as First Church so they called them First Church and they called us Second Church we were New School Presbyterian Church but at this point nobody knew what that meant anymore and so finally the church decided well we're rebuilding this church we're in the center of town maybe we should change our name and they could have been Second Presbyterian Church but they decided no let's do something different and they became what? Central Presbyterian Church. And so imagine 1894, meeting finally in this newly renovated White Hall, and now having the name Central Presbyterian Church. We go across town for our fourth day of Christmas, 1899. The city of Newcastle was beginning to grow eastward, and a few Forward-thinking Christians decided that a church needed to be planted on that side of town. So that Christmas, the beginning of what would become Third Presbyterian Church, met in a small storeroom on Lathrop Street. Imagine this group of people meeting at a storefront. I mean, so there's no chairs, right? There's no organ. You're like sitting on boxes and crates and wherever you can. But really quickly, that church found a property, built a building, rebuilt a building, and became what third became. The fifth day of Christmas. Imagine Christmas, 1918. Very challenging year, and a year that might actually remind us some of our current challenges. Let me go back to the last decade before that. In 1911, there was a major conflict in our church, written about in the church history between a pastor and an elder it became pastors and elders can sometimes be a little stubborn right but this got huge actually according to the records about 200 people left our church because of the conflict that happened and that pastor didn't stay eventually had to find another place world war ii began in 1914 so these were challenging times huh one thank you thanks it even says World War I. I don't know why I said two. <laughs> I'm jumping all over time here. It's a little bit difficult. In 1916, the state health department asked churches to cancel meetings for all children under the age of 16. Anybody know why? Polio. There was a polio pandemic in 1916. Uh, and then in 1918, we get the flu pandemic flu pandemic canceled church for several weeks. And the church history says that our church was one of the forward-thinking churches that sent sermons through the mail to all the church members (laughs) while we weren't meeting together. And the pastor was praised for doing that, (laughs) 1918. Actually, as a lot of churches were struggling in 1918, uh, Central Presbyterian grew a little bit, giving was up a little bit, and actually uh, we did very well in a pandemic. Hey, we've been doing that for a hundred years, right? <laughs> Imagine Christmas that's that year. As, as World War II is, is, is hopefully coming to a close, but you don't know that yet. Each week you're praying for the boys that are listed in the bulletin who are away at war. Having survived the pandemic, but still frightened of polio and the flu. Now let's move now to the sixth day of Christmas. The year is now 1944. And uh, a world war has started again. Everyone knows people who are away at war. By this, one, every, by this point, everybody knows someone who is not coming home from the war. To help, the church sends letters and packages. In the safe upstairs, we actually have a whole stack of these. And I found one. Um, it, this, is, uh, this is from December sixteenth, nineteen 1944. And what they used to do is they used to send the letters home on uh, on film so they didn't have to send all the letters home and they'd print them and then send them okay so I have one I'm gonna read it to you to Central Presbyterian Church December 16th 1944 from somewhere in Italy dear friends I'm writing to this to acknowledge my having received your Christmas box and I thank you very much for your kindness I really appreciate it very deeply and I'm sure all the other boys who were sent similar boxes, feel the same as I. It isn't quite so hard spending Christmas in a foreign land when you know your friends, or friends at home are thinking of you. I want to thank you also for sending me your church booklet, and I enjoy it very much. I hope you continue to send it. It affords me a great deal of pleasure. I hope to be with you in the next year, and I surely pray that all this will end soon. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas, and I hope that the new year brings you much prosperity and happiness. May all your sons, husbands, and friends return home safe, soon, and unharmed. I'll be looking forward to meeting all of you then, and I expect to be able to show my appreciation for your thoughtfulness and kindness a little better. Goodbye and good luck. Sincerely, Sergeant Mel Um His address is from New York, so I, I think maybe the way he says he... M- wants to meet us. He's not from this church, but actually somebody sent him a Christmas box. Does everybody catch that? We've been sending Christmas boxes (laughs) for 70 years. Okay, We were sending Christmas boxes way before Operation Christmas Child. But imagine getting these kind of letters around Christmas time, sending them, sending boxes. Imagine the ministry of the church to those families whose sons weren't coming home. Some of you, We'll remember our seventh day of Christmas. The year is 1949. On March of that year, the old central building catches on fire and is completely destroyed. The theory is that perhaps coal in the furnace, Stoker, had, uh, had lit and then burned up through the heating ducts into the chancel. A young boy is walking by, sees the fire. By the, by the time the firemen get there, there's really no way to save the building on, uh, you can see the newspaper article on your uh, um, placemat. Um, I think some of those pictures are in the history also that you've been given. So the fire was put out. You can imagine people showing up to church. It's a Saturday night. They show up that morning. They don't know that the church is burned. So they come and they find it there. The church, whatever they can gather, gather at the YWCA to sing and to weep. Christmas that year, and for the next several years, would be for a homeless church. It would be held in the Scottish Rite Cathedral. Does anybody remember worshiping there? See, there are still some of those around. Imagine singing Silent Night in a location that was not your own. So then the church had a decision to make. Do we rebuild? What do we do? How do we work this system? So they decided that there was a committee that was brought together that, that met to analyze the damage, decided how they were going to gather and how they were going to pull things together. And uh, they gathered one night to hear a report from the committee. Miss Alice Sterling recorded her feelings on the night of the, that the church heard the report about rebuilding and relocating. Let me read her words. The report was heard with deep attention on the part of the audience. Dramatic atmosphere was felt. None of us had ever built or located a church before. We felt the planning must be done with a long-range view, 50 to 100 years. The old church had come to use to us as an inheritance from a generation long gone. They were pioneers, abolitionists, who made a religious issue of their desire for freedom for all men. The feeling of being pioneers in the building of a new church possessed most of those present. They were persuaded that it would be unwise to rebuild on the old site, merely for sentiment's sake. So the church made a hard decision. We're going to move. We're going to go somewhere else, and we're going to build a new building. So they got a farm on Wilmington Road. Actually, having dealt with a lot of the water issues around here, it was as much a swamp as it was a farm. Okay? And uh, people thought they were crazy because there's literally, there was nothing up here on Wilmington Road. It's just some farms, very scattered. They decided, inspired by the pioneers and the abolitionists that had built the church, that they needed to rebuild, relocate, and have a long-term vision for what the church could be. Fast forward three years to our eighth day of Christmas, 1952. After working tirelessly to find a new location, they found this location. The cornerstone was set May 6, 1951, but worship started in 1952. A few things to note. It wasn't until 1953 that the church had any pews. A okay, couple years, no pews. No communion table, no pulpit furniture. Imagine Christmas in a new building especially after going through a couple years of worshiping somewhere else after your old building had been burned. Imagine Christmas together for the first time in this space. Also interesting to note that this church didn't have the money to complete the building. Did you know this? And so the education wing, that whole side, was not done. I mean, the outside was there, but the inside wasn't there. And so um, they had to just have this building. And that's why my office is way over here. Away from the rest of the office, because my office was there before the rest of the office was there. So, this takes us to our ninth day. Just a few years later, 1958, Northminster had completed the manse in 1957, and then finally in 58 finished the education wing. That same year, the Presbyterians and the United Presbyterians merged to become... The United Presbyterian Church in the USA. Since Central was now North and no longer Central, they decided maybe a name change was in order. And so taking the opportunity to be part of a new denomination, finishing finally the rest of the building, they decided to call themselves Northminster. Church finally in 1958, in a completed building, under the name Northminster, celebrates Christmas, and maybe most importantly that year, starts coffee hour. <laughs> we see our church's love of Christmas as we peer back to our tenth day of Christmas, nineteen seventy-five. Nineteen seventy-five, the church had gone through some very big movements. In sixty-nine, the rose window had been given with an anonymous gift. In 1973, the mortgage was burned, and the church's building's debt from the building and the education wing were finally satisfied. In 1960, or 1975, Northminster began producing a large Christmas experience. How many of you remember the Christmas experiences? Yep, yeah, I got some more hands then. okay, The first one was called The Joy, uh, the joy and Sharing of Christmas took weeks to build. If you, if you have not seen pictures or heard about this, you've got to talk to one of those people that raised their hand. Because what they would do is they would take the church, and they would divide it into rooms. I mean, there'd be fake walls kind of everywhere. And you would go on this experience as a small group. A leader would take you through, and um, there'd be a live nativity set. There was a seven-foot frosty the snowman that moved and spoke. Um, I'm trying to find pictures of that. So If anybody has that, I want to see what that actually looked like. In each room, visitors were given a memento, a uh, straw from the stable, a paper snowflake, that kind of thing. The experience was so popular, they did it again next year, and 7,500 people went through the Christmas display. 7,500 people. In 1982, important year, we started another thing called Let's Go to Bethlehem. It's important, too, because I was born that year. They started in 1882, Let's Go to Bethlehem. Some 3,800 people came through that four-day event. Later, the church did a similar experience called Where Jesus Walked for Lent. All in all, we've done six of these productions. Imagine celebrating Christmas with that, right? With this giant celebration. I mean, what it shows is how much our our church loves Christmas and how important it is for us that, that, that Christmas be a time to show others the love of Jesus. Our 11th day of Christmas happened in 2003. Ten years earlier, the session of the church had formed a long-range planning committee and identified needs in the church, like the need for missional objectives, care for the homebound, dynamic worship, relationship groups, more accessibility and more visibility as a church. Isn't that funny? That's the same conversations we seem to be having right now. Around the same time, the church had, had, was looking at some serious budget shortfalls. A new pastor named Andrew Gilson had come along, as well as many people in this room had gotten to work planning, doing a campaign called Rebuilding Northminster. And the year 2000 became known as the year of the organ, as funds were raised to, to fix up the organ. 2002, the elevator was put in. Okay, and if you, you have to see pictures sometime of the elevator not there. Because it would just so happened that the stairwell circled just right where there was enough space for an elevator shaft to go inside of it. So the stairs are original. The elevator was put down the middle of it. In 2003, the portico was built on the front of the church. It's hard to even imagine the portico not there. But if you go upstairs, there's a, there's a picture of it in the vestibule without that. It was just a sidewalk and some steps. There's no vestibule, no drive-up. But imagine right now not having that accessibility, not having our elevators, not having a place where people can come right in the front door. That was incredibly forward-thinking to get our church finances in order and to have reserves so that we can respond to things like pandemics and, and do things like fix up the building. Imagine in 2003, and some of you were there, worshiping, singing joy to the world, having done so much work to fix up the church in that decade before. And ladies and gentlemen, today is our 12th day of Christmas. On this date, 2021, we celebrate Christmas together. We have gone through a global pandemic. We've done online church, window church, and drive-in church, Right? We've done all kinds of stuff that our forefathers and foremothers could not have imagined us doing. We've worked to have the financial reserves. We've worked to keep up our building, to be a church with a strong future. We have a renovated basement here. We have a new sign up. We have all kinds of things that continue. And now to stay true to this history, everybody, we have to continue to be pioneers. Right? We have to continue to work. Though I love how Hebrews talks about this that we have this great cloud of witnesses. I like to imagine it like like in the back of the church or around us right now are those who have gone before us, watching, cheering us on, celebrating what we are doing with what they did. And I'm so fascinated as we look at the history of our church, how much the DNA of our church continues. Isn't that funny? Right? We've always cared about what's happening in our community and our world part of who we are. We've been sending Christmas boxes since 1944. We've been merging with other churches since 1867. We've been adapting our buildings to our ministry for 170 years. We have lived and worshipped through wars, through pandemics. This church has survived fires and conflicts, denominational changes. You can change the name on the sign. We just keep cooking, right? (laughs) And when you're a part of Northminster, you're a part of 170 years of this church's ministry. I sat down this week and uh, tried to count baptisms, which is in like a whole bunch of books. So it's not, but, but by my estimations, there's, I can count about 1,500 baptisms that have been done in this church. 1,500 baptisms. And I guarantee you I don't have them all written down. <laughs> okay, how many weddings? How many funerals? How many dinners? God has been with this church for a long time. And by the way, 170 years, that's just the recent history. Right? We're a part of something that goes back 1,800 years. And that's just the Christian part. You count the Jewish part we were grafted into, we've got thousands of years of history. So to stay tuned to that history, we've got to keep moving, we've got to keep growing. We've got to keep seeking God's will. We've got to keep celebrating Christmas. We've got to keep showing people the love of Christ in our midst. That's our mission moving forward because that's always been our mission. So let us celebrate together what Christ has done for us and for this church.